This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. With me today on the Ether Review is Eric Voorhees, CEO of Shapeshift, and we're going to be talking about the new non-custodial crypto portfolio management tool, Prism. Thanks for joining me, Eric. Thanks very much for having me. So Prism is, just looking over the documentation recently, Prism's a really incredible step in the direction of maintaining a crypto portfolio in a single place without actually having to provide your public keys to a third party. It's really something that the space has been waiting for for a long time. So, I mean, congratulations on coming up with something so uh, innovative to begin with. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the, the major benefit here is that someone can get access to a, a portfolio of digital assets without holding them at an exchange, which is what most people do and which is very dangerous. So hopefully Prism will be safer and more convenient than what people are currently using. So how exactly does it work? Uh, so a user goes to the website, which is prism.exchange, and they uh, create a custom portfolio. Let's say 20% Litecoin, 50% Bitcoin, and 30% Dash. And they specify how large of a portfolio they want. So let's say $10,000. Uh, and then they provide their Ethereum address, and that Ethereum address is essentially all the authentication that's needed. And then they send in $10,000 worth of uh, Ether as collateral for the Prism portfolio to be created. And when they do that, uh, Shapeshift on the other side sends in the same amount of collateral into the portfolio as well. And then the portfolio exists as a smart contract on Ethereum, fully collateralized by both sides. Whenever the user wants to close the portfolio, uh, she can do so, and I will receive back more or less ether than the, than she put in based on the performance. So Shapeshift actually collateralizes the opposite side of the of the portfolio. This is a CFD essentially. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's sort of a new thing. It's never really existed before. It's a synthetic, I think, is fair to say. And yeah, in this case, Shapeshift is taking the other side of the position. And Shapeshift hedges itself because it doesn't want to go short on all these portfolios. Uh, so we hedge ourselves, but that's all irrelevant to the user. Uh, the user doesn't have to care whether we're hedged or, or how we hedge because the uh, portfolio is fully collateralized and the user knows that they don't have to trust that we will uh, perform or pay out or anything like that. So essentially, we're creating a portfolio that is traded against ether as a base currency correct you guys collateralize that and then hedge on that collateral so you're not having to make the assumption that most portfolios won't outperform ether right we we would never make assumptions like that because no one can know those things so since we're taking the short position against the user's long position we don't want to be short so we hedge it so that it's neutral uh, we basically don't care whether it goes up or down if it goes up we lose some of the collateral we put into the portfolio, but we gained on our hedge, and so it, it should be a wash if we do it right. But again, all that's irrelevant to the user. 
And what's Shapeshift's end here? How do you guys monetize this? Or is this, or is that not part of the initial plan here? Uh, the initial plan is absolutely to monetize it. There is a 2.4% fee that is charged when a prism is closed. That's basically our revenue model. And there's a couple a couple other fees. There's a rebalance fee of, of half a percent. If you reallocate part of the portfolio, half a percent is charged on the portion that's reallocated. And then in the future, there will be a monthly fee that is paid either by the buyer to the seller, so either by the long position to the short position, or by the short position to the long position, depending on market demand on each side. But that's a little advanced for the first version. So for now, the only two relevant fees are the 2.4% to close the portfolio and half a percent on any amount that is rebalanced. And so what the customer is getting in exchange for these fees is essentially protection from the failure of a third-party asset exchange like Poloniex, which would be the alternative. Yeah, yeah. They're getting that and they're getting a much easier way to access it. So if time is worth anything, uh, Prism is a lot easier than depositing money at an exchange, you know, opening the exchange account in the first place, depositing money there, putting in bid orders, waiting for the mole to fill, dealing with all that kind of thing, and then tracking performance easily. It's just faster, easier, and certainly safer than leaving your funds on deposit with some other party. So Prism runs on the Ethereum network, the, the public Ethereum network, is that correct? Correct. So this sounds like it might be quite a complex contract or set of contracts. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it took a while to develop. Um, it's, it's pretty cutting edge stuff. I think it will help demonstrate to the Ethereum community and, and perhaps even the more, perhaps even the broader financial community, um, the power of smart contracts. And, I, you know, I think Prism is certainly one of, if not the first uh, commercially available financial tool that's been built on Ethereum, at least it's certainly the first of its kind. And so hopefully this will help show people that the smart contracts of Ethereum are not just theoretically cool and useful, but are actually cool and useful. And, and this demonstrates that. So when you deploy these portfolios, they're being deployed through a single contract on the Ethereum network. Is that correct? Yeah, um, there's a few moving parts. We, there is a, a single smart contract that is deploying each prism contract so that's the same on each one uh, it basically instantiates the user's custom contract and then um, each prism itself is one contract and I, I believe it used to be several three or four or five that were all connected together but in in refactoring things we've we've gotten it down to one contract I believe one or two so, um, but uh, importantly it is unique for each user so each user's prism is its own smart contract with its own address on the Ethereum network. Each one is held separately. So in other words, there's not, there's not one big smart contract that'll have all the capital of all the prisms out there. This is really amazing stuff. I mean, this is by far the most advanced financial uh, application we've seen developed. It's, it's really awesome. I'm, I'm blown away. I was really excited to see the promotional material actually. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty fun. I mean, we've been we've been working on it for about a year and a half, and you know, everyone we showed it to thought it was pretty cool. But uh, there's just there's something a little scary about like finally revealing it to the world, you know, because you never really know how the broad marketplace will will view it. And the response has been really overwhelming. I, I think half because people wanted 
want to try it and they feel like that's a product that they have been waiting for. Uh, and then the, in the other half, just because it, this helps to demonstrate how cool Ethereum is and it, it helps to really show a lot of the fundamental value that justifies a lot of the speculation on Ethereum over the past couple of years. It does, because this is a way to track external assets using a smart contract that could potentially be traded as a security itself on the Ethereum network. Yeah, so one thing we're really interested to see, um, and we probably won't do this ourselves, but others will, is that once you create a prism, you could tokenize the prism itself. So if you make a prism of like the top 10 coins and it's worth $100,000, you could tokenize that, issue tokens that are backed by ownership in the Prism smart contract. And then those tokens themselves would be little little proxy shares, essentially, of the Prism. And I think uh, people are going to find some really interesting things to build on top of Prism as we open it up to larger groups of people. Are there any plans to attach non-digital assets to Prism portfolio creation tools? Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly in a future version of the product. That's uh, This recalls what we saw with BitShares way back in 2014 with their, what do they call them? Polymorphic digital assets, I believe. <laughs> it's a great word. Yeah, fantastic. And and this really recalls what they were trying to do. And it's, it's awesome to see. Of course, Shapeshift would be the one to do it because you guys have access to so much liquidity. Yeah, um, you know, ultimately... The uh, Prism as a standalone product will be interesting, but when combined with what we're doing at, at Shapeshift proper, there's a lot of synergies to use that overused term. So these are all the kind of tools that, that we build so that more volume runs through our little universe. And the more volume that runs through our little universe, um, you know, the, the more powerful the whole Shapeshift ecosystem can get. It means we can get better rates for people. It means we have greater liquidity. It means we have more users doing more different things. And so we can have good communications with them and, and really like kind of build a community around this stuff. So let's talk about Shapeshift and uh, the future of Shapeshift, because this is starting to get really interesting. What do you see as, um, how does Prism fit into uh, the shapeshifts strategy for the future? Um, there are, as it stands now, there are four products that shapeshift has been building. One is uh, shapeshift that everyone knows. One is CoinCap, which, which people know basically a, a market data site and a, a really great mobile app for tracking the values of different assets, different crypto assets. Those two have been out for a couple of years. Prism is the third one that we just released at Consensus. And then there's a fourth one, which is still a secret that people don't know about. But basically, all these things have in common that they are oriented around the trading and data of digital assets. Nothing to do with fiat in any, in any of them, nor, nor will there ever be. Shapeshift from the beginning has been purely focused on a future in which digital assets are, in fact, the greater portion of assets in the world. And I think when I started Shapeshift, that sounded really crazy to people because Shapeshift was used for, for buying Dogecoin and Litecoin, and most people didn't understand what we were doing. But now, especially with the rise of Ethereum and all the amazing projects getting built in every direction, people are realizing that tokens, digital units of value, are going to be everywhere, doing all sorts of things, currency being just one of them. And so Shapeshift's really built to be the, 
the platform where those assets can be uh, exchanged. It is meant to be a frictionless platform for the trading of all digital assets around the world. And what does that mean for the world, having this, this super fluid exchange of value units that could represent just about anything from a basket of assets that might be represented by a prism to, say, a basic attention token, right? The idea of these things being absolutely fluidly exchangeable. What does that mean? What will the world look like according to the, the kind of shapeshift view? Um, we don't know what the world will look like other than the assumption that tokens will be everywhere. And what we're doing is simply making it faster and easier for these to move and convert. And by simply making it faster and easier, you know, and, and safer, really, we lower the bar for usage. And that means more usage will happen. So maybe an analogy would be if when email came out, every time someone sent an email to someone else, there was like a three hour delay and they had to like go through some other website and fight through a bunch of stuff in order to get the email processed and then sent out the other side, you know, and then someone comes along and, and allows email to be sent instantly without friction, that would help enable email to spread faster. And that's kind of what we see our role as, as Shapeshift is, is to just make the movement between digital assets um, as, as easy and as frictionless as possible, because that helps enable the, uh, the tokenized world that we believe is an inevitable. Uh, it's just a question of when. What is your current daily throughput and how has that changed over the last couple of years? Um, it's gotten pretty immense. Uh, and, um, I, you know, I think this, this is true of most businesses in crypto right now. The last couple of months have just been the, just absurdly high volumes and, and best you know, business ever. But to put it in a little perspective, um, in December of 2015, so a year and a half ago, we did about $1.6 million worth of orders during that month. December of this past year, six months ago, we did $20 million of volume. So more than a 10x growth in a year, which felt great. Uh, and then May, which just finished, we did $210 million of volume in one month. So we've grown 10x again just since December of this past year. So it's been just a really impressive slash scary growth to to see that kind of thing. It's fun because we you know we just did our Series A round uh, a few months ago, and so I was working on putting that deal together over the six months prior, and all the projections that I made and that I pitched to them about what Shapeshift could do over. 2017, 2018, they all looked reasonably optimistic, but they've just all been blown out of the water at this point. So the, the investors are thrilled and they, you know, the ones of them that are new to the crypto world, they're seeing these tokens you know, rise in Ethereum going from $10 in December up to $250 almost now. There's just an incredible energy happening with this stuff. And it's absolutely entering a bubble that will pop and it'll be bloody and everyone's going to run for the hills again, as, as happens always in crypto, these bubbles, <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, they're, they're inevitable. Each bubble, each bubble gets bigger and more interesting than the last one. And in general, the industry is just really going through an awesome period of growth right now. I use Shapeshift a lot myself and I submitted a ticket once because, you know, a trade didn't come through or something and you guys dealt with it really quickly, but 
with this amount of volume, I mean, it must be stressing the organization. It, it's totally stressing the organization. Um, it's always a good stress to have. But yeah, I mean, we, we have, I think, seven full-time customer support staff at this point. And in December, we had one. So we're making sure that while we grow, we, we maintain that good customer relationship. Because I think in the crypto industry, a lot of companies have really not paid attention to that or, or just hasn't been a priority. But if, if the crypto world is going to succeed, there's going to be a constant influx of brand new people. That'll be sort of the default state for the next decade. And we take it upon ourselves to like really welcome them in. A lot of them have like makes you know silly mistakes or, or ask silly questions, but we we try to take care of them. We you know all this stuff's really weird to them, so we we try to really make sure that they feel good about their experience in crypto. So it's it's been hard. I mean, the, with the week at consensus, the, the ticket load for customer support requests was was nuts. I mean you know, we're, we're processing hundreds and hundreds of tickets a day. Like we're now doing between 12 and 15,000 customer orders every single day. Um, so just, just getting the company to scale and handle that volume has been a challenge. A lot of the blockchain software is not designed or has not been tested at these levels right now. Shapeshift is about two to 3% of the entire Bitcoin network, for example, and we're probably an even larger portion of many of the other blockchains. And you just get these weird bugs that come out at scale that you don't see when you try 100 transactions. But when you do 10,000 a day, they, they really come out of the woodwork. And then all these blockchains have weird interactions with each other. And just it, it's just a constant battle. But it's, um, it's very exciting. It's intellectually stimulating. And there's no way to build a frontier market without handling these kind of uh, issues and, and building up through them you must be developing a or accruing as an organization a really deep understanding of the peculiarities of all of these different blockchains yeah i think we i think we know them pretty well i mean there are a lot of exchanges that do more volume than us but because everything we do is on chain we have a sort of a different perspective and you know whereas a a, a customer doing 10 orders with us is doing 10 blockchain transactions, which actually means 20 blockchain transactions because there's the input and the output. So, you know, often we're going back to the developers of these coins and letting them know about these weird problems and, and things that they just hadn't considered before or that they hadn't thought, they hadn't thought something would be used in a certain way. And then we go back to them and we say, yeah, this is how it's being used in, in the real world. What, what can we do to make this problem go away? So it's very much like a collaborative process with other developers of these these projects, we work very closely with other exchanges, well, friends and, and partners really in the industry. And that's kind of crucial when things are growing this fast and when we have so many important battles to fight. So is there a plan on the roadmap for Shapeshift to make use of all of this knowledge that it's accruing? Well, the, the plan is to grow Shapeshift into a, a huge multi-billion dollar uh, crypto business <laughs> yeah of course uh it's certainly the most it's the most well put together service that's been assembled it's the it's the most unique and thank you compatible oh well man like it's incredible so what has been really interesting about the most recent rise are there any peculiar dynamics that you noticed one peculiar dynamic which i guess could be expected is 
So I've been in Bitcoin since 2011. I've gone through a number of these bubbles. And especially early on, there's always people saying that Bitcoin was a scam. There was nothing but a bubble. And, you know, it was just a, a fad. And, and everyone who's involved in it is is either a, a criminal or, or stupid or both. Bitcoin has proven itself, I think, now over the last almost decade. And so those critiques are not as common, although they're still made. But now we have this huge bubble in other digital assets, tokens, you know, and, and at the center of it all is Ethereum, which is this huge blockchain in its own right now. And you have these same stupid arguments grouping everything into one category and saying it's all a big scam, saying that, you know, all, all token sales are just a scam to rip people off at, at absurd valuations and that there's no value there and it's all just smoke and mirrors. And that that kind of really ignorant and lazy argument is depressing to see again because i feel like it was addressed years ago and people should have learned their lesson that this this crypto thing is real that the ability to digitize value and move value all over the world instantly anywhere is fundamentally going to change the world and it's going to have all sorts of interesting manifestations the, the token sales are, are just one of those there certainly are a lot of token sales for projects that will fail there are token sales for projects that are scams but the model of token sale is absolutely legitimate, is going to be massive, and is going to change how companies and projects of all sizes all over the world raise capital. And that's a really special and magical thing to see happening. But yet you always have these people that will come out and just kind of crap all over everything that's, that's doing well, when it's doing well. And then when the bubble inevitably pops, which it will, they'll, they'll come back and say, I told you so. And and meanwhile, the rest of us that have been building will just keep on building and be back at it again in the next cycle. So something really strange is happening here. And as you said, strange and wonderful. And that is the ability for this ecosystem to essentially mint its own money and self-fund, which has enabled this amazing feedback mechanism where we're, we're building, self-funding and recycling value through this essentially new financial system. And you guys are right at the heart of it. So where do you see the greatest demand or the, the lowest hanging fruit for infrastructure projects? I'm, I'm not sure. We have so many projects that we're trying to work on that it's hard for me to kind of look out beyond what we're doing and see what else needs to be done. I, I actively try not to do that because we're trying to take on too much already. So I probably don't have a good answer for you. But really, I think... To the extent that people can make software that makes these tokens really convenient, really easy, friendly, reliable, uh, foolproof, those are going to be good. So, you know, wallets that make make the experience really attractive, like like Exodus, those projects I think are going to be really really popular as this tokenization trend continues. How does a wallet provider make money? Well, the, yeah, I think all wallet providers struggle with that question. We have actually become the source of revenue or, or a primary source of revenue for a number of wallets from our commissions that we pay. So companies that plug into the Shapeshift API, to the extent that they're uh, running orders through our exchange, we're, we're paying uh, 25 basis points back to them on all that volume. Some of, the, some of the amounts we're sending to these partners has gotten really, really high, kind of uncomfortably high for us when we, when we write these checks. We're not writing checks, of course, we're sending crypto, but just seeing the, the numbers has been a, a little 
hard to swallow, but at the same time, they're bringing us all this volume. And so that's a, a good problem to have as well. But being able to monetize a multi-token wallet can now totally be done. If you plug in the Shapeshift API, a number of customers will convert between different coins. And then that can be pretty serious revenue if you have any significant amount of users. So Shapeshift is quite quickly becoming a core infrastructure piece that allows the exchange of value between chains. And we're seeing these new solutions like Cosmos, Polkadot, BTC Relay that enable that to happen using a decentralized blockchain interface. Is that something that you see as a potential threat to your business? People have been asking those questions for three years now since we started Shapeshift. And to start, I, I would say the more useful tools there are in crypto, the better for everyone. Direct competitors to us are the other exchanges, and yet we want them to be strong. They, the more volume they have, the, the more liquidity the market gets, the more people are able to move in and out of the market, and the more we benefit ourselves as well. So I generally see the competition as not between entities within the crypto world, but between the crypto world, which is building an entirely new financial infrastructure versus the legacy financial infrastructure, which is still 99.9999% of all the, all the value and transactional throughput on earth. That is the target in my mind. That is what the crypto industry is, is building to compete against. So I guess that was a, a long answer to say, not really. I mean, we, we invest in some of those projects ourselves. We, we want to see them be big and strong and, and, the more, the more strong services and use cases you have in crypto, the better. Because you guys have such incredible understanding of how these existing blockchains work, and you've tested them at such tremendous load, it seems like you'd be in a really great position to integrate some of those into blockchain transaction systems and deploy them in a usable way. Yeah, I think we'll be, we ourselves will be customers of some of these new platforms. And also, I think people forget that the value that Shapeshift provides is not just one thing. It is not just that a coin can turn into another coin. It is the whole experience around it. it, is the fact that if someone has a question, they can contact our support. It is the fact that we have really easy-to-use uh, software that makes things convenient for people. It's the fact that there's always a bid and an ask. There's always liquidity at Shapeshift, no matter what. Um, the, the A whole suite of different uh, value that, that we bring. And so other platforms that do w one thing or another, we'll, we'll, we'll see how they go. But uh, so far, we, we're happy to just see the industry developing. How do you see the crypto ecosystem making inroads into traditional finance? It'll happen in many ways all over the world over the next decade. And it's, it's already been happening. I think that crypto has already gotten through the biggest hurdles, which is just getting just being taken seriously by the world. Um, when I got involved, no one took it seriously. And the, even the people that had heard of it just thought it was was stupid. And at this point, you have every major financial institution in the world researching this stuff, probably freaking out a little bit in their board meetings about what they're going to do now that uh, money and value operate, not just without them, but on a completely different infrastructure, not even using the fiat currency anymore. And it, it just is going to happen bit by bit. I mean, at Consensus, there was a great announcement from the uh, CEO of Fidelity that they had integrated uh, Coinbase such that someone in their Fidelity account could see their, their Bitcoin balance as, as part of their portfolio. 
that is a really big move by one of the biggest financial institutions in the world to embracing uh, and welcoming crypto. So things like that will happen all the time. And on the currency and money side, you'll just have an increasing number of people all over the world using crypto payments for a larger and larger portion of what they do. And you can see this happening in Bitcoin's transaction count, which just continues to rise and rise throughout all the bubbles, uh, throughout all the busts. The, the number of people using Bitcoin as a network for payments is, is just going up and up and up. And at some point, not next year, not the year after that, but at some point, people just start realizing that like, if they can receive their payment, if their their salary in crypto and they can pay in crypto and it's cheaper and easier and faster, uh, what what's the point of fiat? It, it just starts to look as silly as it really is, which is just a, a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of garbage money created at whim by by central banks for their own benefit. And and I think the the real catalyst for when things change will be whenever the next world financial crisis is, because now there is an alternative and there's never been a true alternative to the world fiat financial system before whenever there's been a, a big calamity so we'll we'll see a lot of a lot of individual people probably mostly outside of the western world at first embracing this technology and using it for all their normal things and someday people are going to wake up and realize that like crypto already happened and all the things that people were dreaming about just kind of became normal even without people really seeing that happen very clearly, kind of like how everyone just sees the internet as normal now, even though 30 years ago it was, uh, you know, a very obscure piece of technology. So this brings me back to this question of scaling. We haven't seen a high-performant public blockchain yet, certainly not one that can cope with the type of throughput that you would have in, say, a global financial catastrophe where you have a massive onboarding of a huge number of uh, people. How do you see scaling developing and where do you think it will come from? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the pessimistic view is that uh, crypto as an industry and as specific blockchains in particular are not at all ready for any significant amount of the world to be using it yet. Um but the optimistic perspective is, at the same time, the industry is more ready than it's ever been for a lot of people to be using it. There are more exchanges. Everything is more liquid. Wallets are easier to use. There's better best practices about security. Um, so things are getting better and better. Uh, you know, I, the Bitcoin scaling debate is just the the nightmare of the ecosystem right now. And um, I kind of feel like it's going to get settled this summer. Maybe I'm being naive and maybe I'm like high on fumes or something, but either the the, the DCG SegWit 2x um, plan or a UASF, uh, which would start, should happen on August 1st. I, I feel like one of those is going to happen this summer. And if it does, it could be very chaotic for Bitcoin in the short term. The price of Bitcoin could collapse by 50 or 80 or 90% in the very short term. But then the issue will be settled. The whole industry can move on. Something Bitcoin will look new. It'll have new features, a new way of moving forward, and uh, people can keep building on top of it. Uh, and it'll get better and better at at scaling. Uh, it's just it's just going to be a struggle, like every step of the way. But that's that's true, really, of all business, all projects. Nothing reaches scale without struggling uh, on the way to get there. 
So you see a two megabyte SegWit solution as the most reasonable. I mean, compromise seems like a strange word here because really we need to be able to expand the network's ability to handle transactions. And right now, uh, if I have a look, we're at, oh no, it's down to 50,000, 56,000. But we've seen it up at over 200,000 before and that's just not tenable. Yeah, I mean, and everyone, everyone agrees on that point. Like everyone wants Bitcoin to scale. There's no one that's opposed to scaling. It's just a question of how and when and the specifics. Um, and, you know, the debate has really been lost by everyone. No one won the debate. No one convinced the other party that they were right. Uh, and so what you have is now just a crystallization of two, two significant camps of people. I don't know which one's bigger. I don't know which one's more important. But one of them wants uh, SegWit and not really to do a hard fork anytime soon. And the other wants a hard fork. And maybe they like SegWit, maybe they, they don't, but their their primary concern is the hard fork. And both plans, if we're being honest, will help. Both plans will help with scale. Both plans, if done correctly, can be reasonably safe. Both plans, if done incorrectly, can be pretty unsafe. And so given those, uh, and, and the fact that if Bitcoin doesn't get its shit together, it will be displaced by something that 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 does. And maybe that takes 10 years from now, or maybe we're already too late, who knows. But if Bitcoin doesn't handle this problem, it will be left behind. Uh, so to me, the clear thing seems to be, you have two sides that disagree on something. Both, both plans improve the protocol. So both plans should be done. And especially if by doing both plans, you can get all parties at the table ready to move forward with something. Like to me, that just seems obvious to the point of absurdity uh, and yet you have the sort of like tribalism of people on both sides that that w that refuse to to consider a compromise because that is bad for technology you can't compromise on technology and it's all about science and my side is the real science and um it's it's gotten very religious it's gotten even though they they claim it's about science it's much more about uh, faith and assumption, and each side spends its efforts finding the worst arguments of the other side and uh, rejecting those. And really, <laughs> they just need to stop, put their egos aside, make something happen that'll cause SegWit to activate, and something happen that'll cause a two megabyte hard fork to happen reasonably soon. And if both those things can be done, Bitcoin will be in the strongest position it ever has been. And I would expect the price will have a rally unlike anything people have ever seen before. One of the primary investment theses that I've heard propounded over the years that's being tested now is that Bitcoin can absorb the innovation of, of other blockchain platforms. And the ultimate irony that we saw recently was when uh, Litecoin activated SegWit and we saw Litecoin adopting the innovation that had taken place and was originally <laughs> intended for Bitcoin. Yep. So... I mean, we need SegWit in order for Bitcoin to be able to adopt these other innovations that are that are taking place, like RSK, sidechains. Lightning, yep. Lightning Network. I mean, I don't understand what the argument is. What the argument is against SegWit? Yeah. Well, I can tell you exactly what the argument is. The argument generally, this is a generalization, is not that SegWit necessarily is, is a problem. It's that... Uh, the people who really want some on-chain scaling feel 
that it's not getting anywhere and that it and that if segwit happens there there's never going to be a hard fork to a larger block size that's what they they feel like if they don't hold out and get at least uh, some kind of you know increase in the in the base block size uh, in addition to segwit that that it's just never going to happen and that uh, the the core developers will just continue putting off a, a hard fork and never never really do it so if you feel like a hard fork is an important part of the scaling plan, then that's that's the perspective. So it's not really an argument against SigWit at all? Um, no. And most people who want a two megabyte hard fork do not are not against SigWit at all. Most people actually really want SegWit. I think probably 90 or 95% of the community would like SegWit to happen. But some people feel like if, it, if it's not paired with a, a a hard fork with a larger base block size that Bitcoin is really going to suffer from that. So, yeah, and I mean, I I have to agree with you. I think that we will see an end to the debate in relatively short order. We might see a fork, or we might see two Bitcoins. What would that mean for Shapeshift and how would the exchange industry manage something like that? Well, so the Ethereum fork was really instructive and I think that a lot of the people in in the Bitcoin world, especially the Bitcoin maximalists that hate everything other than Bitcoin, they they see the Ethereum fork as this like horrible thing that proved that hard forks are like just the the death of a blockchain. And and in reality, uh, the hard fork in Ethereum was really tumultuous in the short term, uh, and it led the price of Ethereum to to fall. And even Ethereum plus Ethereum Classic prices were lower than what Ethereum had been prior to the fork. It was easy to, to point to that and say, look, hard forks are devastating. We have to avoid it at all costs. But we're now about a year past it. And not only is Ethereum 10 or 20x higher than it was before the fork, even the forked minority chain, Ethereum Classic, is, is higher than Ethereum was before the fork happened. So I think it's hard to argue that in that case, the fork was devastating in the long term. And what it did was it allowed two, two portions of a community who had a fundamental disagreement to go off in their own directions. And it was a kind of a violent divorce. But now they're happier. And I remember reading the forums before the fork and everyone was just yelling back and forth, you know, just saying horrible things about the other side, making it personal often. And then after the fork happened, everything was kind of peaceful. And you had both sides with, with the fork that they wanted to build on. And they both now compete in the marketplace, and it's it's relatively peaceful. So if a fork happens in Bitcoin, and, and I mean a, a contentious fork in which a, a sufficient minority is on the, in the, the minor chain, so it continues to go, I don't necessarily think that's the end of the world. It would be really devastating short term. The price would collapse. Uh, it would have all sorts of bad publicity, and everyone would say, oh, God, it's the end of the world. But then you'd have two chains and one would win out in the marketplace over time. And, and, and importantly, a fundamental thing would have been settled. And the fundamental value and cohesion of the community would have been improved. And that's good fertile soil for the actual asset to grow and be more successful than it was prior to that fundamental issue being settled. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not scared of it. I mean, unless you're trying to sell right after it happens and you, you just panic and, you know, then that could be scary. But anyone who has a long-term view of this stuff should realize that it's better to solve the issue instead of just being terrified that a, that a fork might happen. 
Well, you know, Eric, this has been really fantastic, and uh, we've strayed massively away from uh, from just discussing Prism, which uh, which is my original. It's all right. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Um, so before we finish, though, how how many Prism contracts have been de- deployed, and how much? What total value is currently stored in Prism contracts? Yeah, so so it's in private beta. It's on the live Ethereum network, but it's in the private beta, so we're only letting a few hundred people in right now. I think roughly 200 Ethereum worth of contracts worth of Prisms are are outstanding right now, which is intentionally small. So we've limited every every Prism to be a small amount, and we've limited the overall collateral available to be a, a small amount. So we will grow that and increase it over time. We wanted to just move really slowly with Prism in the wild because smart contracts have immense potential, but they're always they're they're also very dangerous if you aren't careful with them. And this was the great lesson that the DAO showed everyone. So we're taking it very slow and steady with it, and we will uh, increase the number of people using it, and we will increase the value of the prisms outstanding. You know, as we feel comfortable. How can people uh, become a member of this beta group, beta testing group? Uh, they just sign up at prism.exchange, and then they'll be in the waitlist. And we bring people in from that waitlist. You know, we we bring some people in every day. And as we get comfortable, we'll, we'll churn through that. It's a fairly long list at this point, um, which is great to see that enthusiasm. But I'd say anyone interested, just put yourself on that list and you can forget about it for a while until you get a, a notice that you've been invited in. And uh, where should people go if they want to exchange their crypto? Well, they should go to Shapeshift, of course. <laughs> uh, that's shapeshift. Shapeshift.io. All right. Fantastic. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Eric. This has been a really, uh, really instructive conversation. It's it's an absolute treat to, to get to talk to such a, an industry visionary. Thank you. Yeah. I hope to talk to you again in the not too distant future. Yeah. It's been really fun. Have a great day. You too. Take it easy. Cheers. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email, contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.info.